Good. So, um, thank you very much for coming down this afternoon on this really hot summer's day. Thank you to M Pavilion for the invitation to speak today. My name's Nick. This is Zoo Ohm, and we're going to have a little chat about the Anthropocene, thinking like bees in the Anthropocene, insect hotels, beehives, urban ecology, that sort of stuff. Um, we'll do a little bit of a talk first, then we'll talk about these guys, and then we'll open up the floor for questions. Just a, one housekeeping note, neither Zoo nor uh, or I have photos of our faces on the internet so if you could take photos but keep our faces out of it that would be unreal and now I'd like to introduce Zoo. Um, hi, uh, before we begin I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Yalukuwalan peoples of the Kulin Nation. Uh, we pay our respects to their lands and their elders, past, present and future. I would also like to mention that within acknowledgement, there should be action. Um, so I'd like us to think about the ways we can act in solidarity with the First Nations people to end the history of silence and oppression that has resulted in Indigenous disadvantage today. And I think as beekeepers, it's super important that we think about beekeeping as being about place and very much as a beekeeper I acknowledge all the unresolved issues that Zoo has just mentioned. Um, in terms of who we are, I established a, a beekeeping creative practice called Honey Fingers a while ago and it's many things. We sell honey but we're also a collective. So Zoo and I are two of I think it's grown out to like 40 people, 30 people, 10 people. That's the Honeyfingers Collective. Um, what we're really interested in is bee cultures. So imagine you've got a Venn diagram and you've got honeybees on this side and you've got human beings on this side. And in the middle, in that intersection you've got bee cultures so that's the intersection of humanities and honey and honeybees and exploring that and investigating that is pretty much what honey fingers is all about and we're really interdisciplinary so we'll explore farming we'll explore food we'll explore ceramics we'll explore music we'll explore architecture we'll explore design we'll explore painting whatever it is as long as bees are at the center of it we're into it. So that's Honeyfingers and the Honeyfingers Collective. Um, hi, I'm Zoo um, and I am a part of the Honeyfingers Collective. This is my third season with the collective and my third collaboration with Nick. Um, the first collaboration is this beehive over here with the rosemary on top. Um, so I'm an artist and I work primarily with ceramics. I also have a parallel conceptual practice that explores the entangled relationship between human and non-human ecologies in the Anthropocene. Uh, we'll go into the Anthropocene in more detail in a bit, but pretty much it's the age of human influence on the planet. Um, I'm interested in how notions of care and uh, custodianship can foster ecological awareness and action as we engage with uncertain environmental futures. So Rose is going to give the kind of theoretical background and then I'm going to throw in a couple of examples of how that works on the ground as a beekeeper. Um, just a disclaimer as well, Rose and I, neither of us are actually experts on native Australian pollinators... Um, Rose knows a lot about ceramics, I know a lot about urban beekeeping, but everything else for us is actually about an investigation and inquiry. So if we don't have really specific answers about scientific names of specific uh, insects, we hope you understand that we're on this kind of journey to discover all this stuff with everybody else. We've just got curious minds and we like sharing what we're investigating at any time. Cool. Uh, so what is the Anthropocene? Um, can I get a show of hands um, if you've heard of the term before? 
Okay, so that's maybe a third of the audiences here. Um, so the Anthropocene is the current geological age where human activity has a significant impact on the ecosystems and the atmosphere of planet Earth. Uh, millions of years from now, there will be a sedimentary rock layer, probably plasticky, um, that will be the geological evidence that humans once occupied the planet. Um, there's a debate amongst scholars on when the Anthropocene actually started. Some claim it's 12,000 years ago when humans stopped being nomadic um, hunter-gatherers and started farming. Um, others claim it's as recent as the 1950s when there's a steep rise in atmospheric concentration of CO2 from burning coal. And there are other theorists who said that it should be called a capitalocene because it's the profit-driven capitalist mode of production that is changing the life systems on Earth. Um, regardless of when it started or what it should be called, uh, there is no doubt that you know, billions of us humans on planet Earth are you know, influencing the fundamental nature of the climate, nat nature, natural resources, and biological diversity. Uh, we're in the middle of a mass extinction caused by deforestation, global warming, pollution. Uh, there's a hole in the ozone layer. Oceans are becoming more acidic, and that's affecting corals and other marine life. Scientists are claiming that there is literally nowhere on Earth that has not been affected by humans, and even the most remote places on Earth contain extraordinary levels of toxic waste, and plastic fibers are found in the stomachs of sea creatures, that live in the deepest parts of the ocean. Uh, and now Nick will give us some urban examples of the Anthropocene. Yeah, so what does that mean for native pollinating insects? So um, I've actually uploaded some information, some notes and some images on my story, which honeyfingers, honey underscore fingers. And I'm about to discuss a very, very cute bee that you can see a picture of here. It's called the blue banded bee. Has anyone... Heard of the blue banded bee? Yeah, it's a cutie, right? So super fast, super hard to see in the garden, but they're in Melbourne. They're actually distributed quite well around parts of Australia. They nest in the ground. So they aren't actually going to benefit from insect hotels, but uh, they're around. The problem is that we as humans tend to put a lot of hard surfaces down on the ground. So as soon as you've got bricks, concrete, bitumen, there's a whole bunch of insects that nest in the ground that no longer have that habitat. This is a nice design because there's a good mix of both. You've got soft landscaping on that side and hard landscaping for the humans on the inside. Some other examples of what it's like to be an insect in the Anthropocene. Um, Big trees, when they drop limbs, big hollow limbs in the bush, they sit on the ground for a long time and marsupials move in, big lizards move in, bees move in. In the city, we pick them up and we take them away. In fact, if an arborist sees a limb that's about to fall down in a public space, we remove it. And even wild colonies of bees, which set up home in wild places, in trees around the city, People don't like bees. They call the council, they make a complaint, and those bees are either removed or oftentimes actually, the colony is actually killed. So there's just a couple of really little examples of what it's like to be an insect in the Anthropocene. Um, so all of this might sound quite terrifying, and it is. Uh, it's a wake-up call that we can no longer be complacent um, or indulge in denial. Um, but at the same time, Nick and I think it's really important that we don't become paralysed by fear or bleakness. Uh, so we'll try to frame this um, urban ecology discussion in, within a narrative of hope. Uh, so now we've got the depressing facts out of the way, we can focus on what we can do from here. Um, so I'd like to talk a bit about shallow ecology versus deep ecology. Um, so shallow ecology describes the viewpoint that ecology should be conserved uh, only if it's in our direct interest to do so. Uh, for example, um, if harming the environment will also harm humans, then the environment should be protected. Uh, so that's a very anthropocentric uh, or human-centric point of view. 
where humans are placed at the top of the food chain or the pyramid. Um, humans are the masters of the earth and are the only life forms of value. Um, so Nick can talk a bit about how beekeeping or keeping European honeybees is quite an anthropocentric practice. Yeah, so as much as we try in Honey Fingers to be bee-centric beekeepers or natural beekeepers, so this hive is a great example. This is a hybrid between what's called a Ware hive and a Langstroth hive. It's, if you look down the guts of it, it looks as though you're just looking into a hollow tree. We do our best to try to create lovely conditions for the bees to live in, but beekeeping is an anthropocentric activity, and I'm the first person to say that. We decide how big the box is. We decide where the box goes. We decide what queen is going in there. Are we going to requeen from a, a, a purebred line? Are we going to catch wild swarms? How much honey are we going to take off? How much honey are we going to leave on? How much water are we going to put out for them? So beekeeping, straight up, the practice of beekeeping, the way we do it, we try to do it nicely, but it's an anthropocentric anthropocentric practice uh, so now deep ecology uh, deep ecology is uh, a shift away from that human centered point of view uh, for example um, you know there's a tree in the park um, instead of thinking oh that tree can provide us shade and fresh air and it's nice to look at we should be thinking oh that tree has a right to be and has a right to live undisturbed just as humans has a right to be and live undisturbed. Um, yeah. Um, so the earth is not just here for us but also for billions of other species. Um, so instead of placing humans at the top of the pyramid, humans are actually part of this entangled, interconnected web of life. Uh, deep ecology argues that the natural world is a subtle balance of complex interrelationships in which the existence of organisms is dependent on the existences of others in the ecosystem. And so Nick will talk about the um, wattle birds and pooping on his car. Yeah, so did everyone get a good smell of this? This is a bee smoker. Has everyone, do you know what these are for? We use them to basically fool the bees into thinking the house is on fire and they start to eat honey instead of trying to sting us in the eyeballs. But the fuel that I'm using in this is interesting because it comes from the malaleuca or prickly leaf tea tree which sits outside our house. And I parked my car under there and I'd been parking it under there for ages there hadn't been any problems. And then one day I came out and there's bird poo all over my car. And I'm like, oh, something's changed. And I was being the bird nerd that I am, I'm like, okay, I've got to figure this out. And so I was sitting there and I finally saw the little culprits. They were two red wattle birds. Does everyone know what red wattle birds are? They've got the little red dauble that hangs down here. They make this really intense sound. I won't imitate them. They're fiercely territorial. And they'll chase away other birds all the time. They'll chase lorikeets away. They'll chase magpies away. Anyway, these two red wattle birds had moved into the tree and were pooing on my car. And the reason it made me so happy was I realized, in addition to feeding on the nectar that the malaleuca provided, so tea trees provide heaps of nectar and are pollinated by birds as well as bees, the wattle birds also eat honeybees. So we'd sit there, and my honeybees were up on the first floor balcony, and you'd see the wattle birds swoop in, nick one of my bees, and get out of there as quickly as it could. And I'd be beekeeping up there, and you'd see it come in, steal a bee, fly away as fast as it could, and you'd just see two other bees, like guard bees, chasing it, trying to sting it to death. My point is that we introduced honeybees to our household, and all of a sudden, they became part of this urban food web. And the really nice thing about the Malaluka tree is in addition to providing habitat for the red wattle birds, so they ended up nesting there because there was a great protein source. I mean, excellent protein. It's protein and sugar because they're always full of honeybees. Um, the trees also provided uh, all that nectar for the birds and for the bees and... 
the tree provides the smoke that we use to smoke the bees to rob the honey that came from the tree that the smoker is being burnt on. So there's lovely little webs that sort of go on there. So if anyone asks me, hey, Lou, can you take that outside? That's my son, by the way. So if anyone asks me why, that's why bird poo in my car makes me happy. And that's kind of the opposite, I think, to what most people think. Um, so we'd we'll like to talk a bit about um, native versus non-native species now. Um, humans classify natural species into those that belong and those that do not belong to, certain, to a certain place. Some plants or animals which are non-native uh, or introduced to a specific location that can reprodu- reproduce and spread um, rapidly are believed to cause severe damage to the local environment. Uh, because they compete with native species for food and habitat, and sometimes they even prey on native species. Uh, These are often described as invasives or pests. Um, Now, the European honeybee is an introduced species, and there are problems with um, these introduced species, and Nick will talk a little bit about how you know, they can be harmful to native bees. Yeah, so as much as we all love honeybees... Apis mellifera, the European honeybee, is introduced to Australia. They've adapted super, super well because eucalypts provide fantastic food. I'm not sure if you've ever looked at a eucalypt flower. It's like a little cup like this. It's open. It fills with nectar and the sort of stamen come out of it. You don't have to be particularly adapted in a unique way to drink nectar from that cup. In addition, they're hollow. And the tree hollows provide the most amazing houses for bees. In fact, so much so that Australia has the healthiest honeybee populations in the world, without a doubt. So 70% of our honeybees are feral, which means they're not managed. And only 30% are managed. In America, it's the opposite. 70% are under management, only 30% are wild. Now, the reason that that can become a problem is that if you're a possum... You can't live in close proximity to 100,000 honeybees that have stings. You know, if you are a parrot and you used to like nesting in that particular hollow and you have 50,000 bees swarm in there, it's a no-brainer. You're out of there. So as much as we love the honeybees and what they're doing, we acknowledge that it's a complex story and we kind of have some ideas about what to do about that, which we'll discuss later on. Yeah, so the other perspective on this native versus non-native kind of uh, issue is that ecologies are always evolving. They're not fixed or permanent. Um, So one example I'm going to talk about is from this really good article called When Plants Migrate uh, by James Treffel that was published in 1998 in the Smithsonian Magazine. So the article talks about these scientists studying plant migration during the last ice age where um, the climate warmed and the glaciers were retreating. Uh, Through fossil records, they found that there's this collective of plants and animals that were living together in symbiosis. Now, um, instead of finding that um, this collective moving um, north north uh, together like one big happy family um, the scientists found that each individual organism moved at its own pace so things that lived together in the past don't live together now and things that live together now didn't live together in the past so it's a bit like one big share house someone moves in someone moves out um, so um, at any given time during a migration, particular organisms happen to be grouped together, but those groupings are just snapshots of a continuously changing reality. Um, so this kind of uh, profoundly changed the idea of native, non-native, introduced, invasive uh, over time, and uh, ecosystems can withstand a little bit of loss and invasion, um, and actually that is pretty natural. Um, so even though there's a lot of interchangeability among members of an ecosystem, um, 
There are still exceptions. So biologists have found keystone species, um, such as a pollinating insect. Um, so this keystone species are so crucial to this ecosystem that its removal will cause the entire ecosystem to collapse. Um, in traditional conservation, where we want to save a particular species, we usually save its home, uh, like a forest or a swamp. Um, but now knowing how malleable ecosystems are, perhaps we should concentrate on how to preserve the ability of plants and animals to respond and adapt to environmental changes. And that's where the insect hotel comes in. Yeah, um, and just on that point as well, some of the pollinators that we're talking about are being researched by the CSIRO to provide pollination services for us. So the little blue banded bee that I talked about before, it's called a buzz pollinator. So it sort of sticks its head up against the flower and vibrates really intensely and the pollen sort of falls out and they work really, really well with tomatoes. Um, but what I really want to kind of talk about now and I want to loop back to that point about the malaluca, the little prickly leaf paperback outside my house. A lot of people say to me, oh, you're a beekeeper. I'm like, yeah, I'm a beekeeper. And they're like, oh, where do you keep your bees? And I'm like, keep my bees in the city. And they're like, well, why do you do that? There's nothing to eat in the city. Like, surely you want to keep your bees out in the bush. And I kind of say, well, city bees are happy bees. It's counterintuitive, but it's really, really true. So I want you to think about this for a sec. Um, let's say that you're a wild hive and you're living down in the Otways, right in the forest. So every year in about autumn, all the messmate flowers. So you might not have a lot of flowers to eat most of the year, and then in late in autumn, it's like, boom, so much food. It's around for three weeks. And you can basically, as a colony, you can put on 30 kilos, 40 kilos, 50 kilos of honey in a very short period of time. Then at the end of the season, boom, there's no food. So you have to keep that honey all year. And you're having to deal with bushfires, drought, inclement weather. If you get a wet spring, you might be done. The patterns of trees, like the messmates don't necessarily flower every year. You might have to deal with farmers who are living next door and spraying stuff everywhere. You compare that to the city, and the city's amazing. You've got this incredibly broad range of food. I mean, look around here. If you're a pollinating insect, this is meze. You know, this is unreal. And you've got University of Melbourne, or the public gardens, or the nonnas, everybody in the backyard with one or two flowers. You add that up over a street, and it's amazing. And there's no bushfires, there's no floods. Even in a drought, people are watering their gardens every day. So what happens with city bees, and as a beekeeper you just see this, spring comes, boom, and then you basically hum along up here all season until the end of autumn and then it drops off. But even through winter, your bees can get out there and forage if it's not raining too much. So city bees are happy bees. And what I want you to think about, if you're not familiar with this concept yet, is we often think in terms of the city being this place that is defined by humans, human activity, city, cars, concrete. And out there somewhere in a fantastic, pristine wilderness maybe in the northwest of Tasmania, is nature. Nature out there, humans in here. Forget it. I want you to start to think about natures. So the urban ecologies that you experience in the city are quite different from the rainforest of the Otways, but they're legitimate and they support a big range of birds and mammals and insects, and that can include honeybees, and one of the most amazing things about being a beekeeper is when you open a hive in the city and you pull out a frame of honey and you stick your finger in and you eat some, you immediately become part of an urban food web. Immediately. So you're eating the nectar from tens and tens of thousands of flowers you're robbing it from bees that are part of a food chain for geckos and spiders 
and red wattle birds and all that other stuff. So I really kind of want people to think about nature and the city in terms of being slightly different and in terms of how we can help accommodate the little animals, and we'll get onto this now. Um, European honeybees are going to move into hollow trees, but you know what we can do? We can put possum boxes out. We can put bird boxes out. We can put swarm traps out for the bees to swarm in in spring so we catch them and then put them in hives. So we can start to understand the complexity of finding some sort of manageable balance between introduced species and native species. And through our big brains, we can accommodate all of those little creatures in the city. Yeah, um, because the reality is that European honeybees are already part of our food web. So it's all about protecting, finding that balance between protecting natives and making room for introduced species. Um, um, yeah, and for them to create this new hybrid landscape that's quite valuable to yeah our culture and landscape. So should we talk about these guys now? Yeah. All right. So on my story, like I said, I've posted a few notes, which I'm going to read from. We got in contact with Dr. Ken Walker, who heads up entomology at Melbourne Museum, and he was super, super helpful. And when we kind of asked him about the specifications for an insect hotel, so the one on this side is the insect hotel, the other one's the beehive, he was... <laughs> It was really nice because he was just kept it so simple. He said, key design features. I built such a hotel last year and I simply got a block of wood and drilled a series of holes with either 6 or 8 mil diameter and a depth of about 20 mil. I put the block of wood out the back. Wasps and bees soon found the hotel and moved into it. So that was pretty much his high-tech solution to building an insect hotel. And that's what we've kind of tried to build here, except we've used bamboo as well. And these are all offcuts and stuff that we found. And the idea is that, you know, the, the bees and the wasps fly around, they scout around, and they find them and they move in. Ken Walker... Yeah, uh, so there are about 1,700 native bee species in Australia, divided into five families. Um, I will try and pronounce the names. It's uh, Colitidae, uh, Strenotritidae, Halitidae, Megachilidae, and Apidae, which includes the um, honeybee species. Um, Megachilidae is pretty much my favourite. Describes today. Yeah. Um, uh, so, of these five families, only two families will occupy the bee hotels. Um, so, some color today, and in particular, only some of the subfamily of Helene and most Megachili Day, which includes both leaf cutted bees and resin bees. Uh, other bees nest in soil or build hives, so are not attracted to artificial bee hotels. Yeah, so that's what we were talking about before. So the blue banded bee, for example, it's not going to set up home in there. But if you provide some habitat, at least you're giving some insects an option. And then on the Instagram story, there's these really cute pictures taken by citizen scientists of a leaf cutter bee. So it's kind of, it's literally cut out a little green leaf and it's shoving it into the hole. Super cute. A mud dauber wasp, so it's picking up mud and coming in shoving it into one of the holes, and a resin bee. So it's gone out and it's pinching resin from trees and it's putting it in one of the holes. These are all natives and they're all around Melbourne. And you can do this at home. It's super, super simple. If you don't have bamboo, just get a block of wood and a drill bit, drill it in, and away you go. The beehive next to it is a... Um, is anyone here a beekeeper? Okay, so you probably run a Langstroth hive? Like... Okay, so this is... Uh, was this our first collaboration? Yeah. Yeah. And there's another woman who was involved who isn't here, Tilly, who did the painting at the front. 
But this is like a hybrid between a Langstroth, which is what most people use, and a Waray hive, which is a, um, like a French design. So the Warays usually have these great handles around, and if you've ever been lifting a 30-kilogram box on a roof, it's super nice having handles to help you. Um, they have big roofs. These are also great on roofs because it gets so hot up there you can vent all the heat away. And then Rose and I were talking about how nice it would be if, you know, we could incorporate plants into the beehive. So this is rosemary and it flowers. Yeah, and it's bee food in spring. Yeah, and it smells great. And, I mean, come and have a look later, but Rose designed or made this sort of like biomorphic potish type ceramics that sit on top. When this is installed at her place, this will have gravel on the top and it will sit in gravel. And there's also this really big bowl that Rose made, which we didn't bring today, that will be full of water. And with aquatic plants in them. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, you know how hot we are today? Bees are also super, super hot. So if you can leave water out for insects, like a shallow pan with lots of big rocks in it, have you guys seen bees swimming in pool, like sipping water at pool edges and stuff like that? They're really hot. What they're doing is they're getting lots and lots of tiny droplets of water. They're bringing it into the hive, dispersing it strategically, and in the same way that we're fanning ourselves, they're fanning their wings and air conditioning the hive. And on hot days, have you seen your bees bearding at the front of the hive? Yeah, so they all hang out the front. Like a, it's called bearding because it looks like a big beard. But if you look carefully, they're all fanning. So they're pushing wind in through the entrance and up through the hive to actually cool the hive. So bees, their body temperature is about ours. So 34 degrees, 35 degrees, 36 degrees. So as soon as it gets above that, they really, really feel it. That was just anecdotal information for you, by the way. And this hive is actually going to Rose's, Zoo's place, sorry, this afternoon. So Zoo has a hive at her house and we've basically been waiting until this presentation and then we're going to move the frames from her hive into this hive. Yeah. Um, so should we open up the discussion yeah. for questions? If anyone's got any questions. Does anyone have any questions? I can bring the microphone over. Yeah, hang on. Um, this was just about the little anecdote you gave us. When the bees are um, flapping their wings, are they trying to air condition the honey or themselves? Because it sounds like they were outside of the hive, but trying to air condition their honey. Good question. They're air conditioning everything. So when you think about honeybees, it's best to think of them as being a superorganism. And a superorganism is something where every element is interdependent upon the other elements and their whole organism can only exist if they're all working. That includes one queen bee. She's the only fertile bee in the colony, usually. 30, 40, 50, 60,000 worker bees. They're sterile females a few hundred drones, and importantly, super importantly, honeycomb. So the honeycomb is part of the superorganism. What they're really trying to cool is the honeycomb, not so much for the honey, although they don't want the wax to melt, but they're trying to keep the brood or the babies cool. That's what they're really trying to do, because if the babies get too hot, they die. But it's a superorganism, so they're trying to keep everything cool, themselves included. And, by the way, they get so grouchy when you open them on a day like today. Like, I made the mistake last week. It was 35 degrees. Louis was there with me. A hive that I usually go into with no gloves. I'm a gloveless beekeeper. So they're usually, they're usually mega chilly day. And I opened the lid and it was like, boom, 50 bees at my face. So... They're moody, they're sentient. And yesterday we went in and we opened them up. It was a nice, cool evening, not a problem. Any more questions? Yep. Uh, can you explain how a swarm trap works? 
I would love to. All right. So there's a professor called Thomas D. Seeley who is based in the States who's a total bee nerd. And he started to observe the the sizes of cavities that bees moved into when they swarmed. I'm going to take a step back. Firstly, swarming, they're not going crazy. They're not flying around trying to kill you. They're just reproducing. So think of the honeybee superorganism. If a strong colony that has outgrown its space and that has heaps of food wants to reproduce, it just divides in two. So what happens is the queen mother flies away with about half the colony, a little bit more, when she knows that she's got some daughters in special cells called queen cells who are going to replace her. So swarming is the reproductive process of the honeybee superorganism. So they're usually really calm. They're usually full of honey. So because they're so full of honey, they're a bit docile. They've got no babies to protect. They've got no food to protect, which is why you'll see so many beekeepers running up to swarms with no protective gear on and just putting them in a box because they're usually pretty mellow. The way a swarm trap works is... Thomas D. Seeley sort of ascertained that somewhere around 40 litres is the ideal cavity that European honeybees are looking for when they swarm. So when they're swarming, they're looking for a new home. They want to set up a new colony. So they fly out, and you'll often see them in like a big clump, like the size of a rock melon or the size of a basketball. Have you seen that? Like that's hanging out in spring under a branch, on a chair. From there... Scout bees go out looking for a new house. They fly in there. They zip around inside it doing this, calculating the volume. I'm not joking. They, fly, they walk around. They figure it all out. They do the maths. If they like it, they come back and do a little dance on the face of the swarm that's hanging there. Have you guys heard about the waggle dance? Yeah, so bees communicate to each other through dancing. Deal with it. Yeah, so... Um, they come back and they like do this amazing waggle dance. I won't get into the technical stuff with you, but the more excited they are about it, the more attention they get. And through the dance, they communicate the exact location of their prospective home site. And so other scout bees will be like, okay, we'll go and check it out. And it's kind of like a YouTube video or something that goes viral. If enough of them come back and they do the same dance and everyone's doing the same dance and they all know where it is, it gets to a point they go pop and they fly to the new home. And a swarm trap is basically designed to be that new home. So it's about 40 litres. You install it 2.5 metres above off the ground. And in the southern hemisphere, you face the entrance north to the sun. And you put it somewhere like under a tree where it gets some direct sunlight, but it's also in the shade. So what you're trying to do with a swarm trap is basically design and install the ideal house for honeybees. It's not really a trap. You should call it a swarm trick, sort of way, tricking them to like, move in. Then we pick them up, take the lid off the hive, tip them in, and then you've got a colony of bees. Any more questions? Yeah? Um, if you were to make um, a hotel like that at home, are there any minimum dimensions or anything like that? For the insect hotel? Yeah. I don't think so, are there, really? Uh, I think um, Dr. Ken said drill holes that's like six millimetres wide and six to eight millimetres wide and, yeah. I think that there doesn't... It it could be as small as one of those bricks. It could be as big as 20 of them. Mm. And the depth? The depth of the holes, I think, is meant to be about 20 mils. Yeah, okay. Uh, But I think that we just overdo it because it's easier. Hi. Hi, Georgia. Hello. Um, In reference to the insect hotel, if you're finding different species of insects moving in, do you find that one species dominates over the others? Like, can wasps coexist with other species of bees and other insects? I reckon they could, but, um, you know, that... That's the first insect hotel we've made and um, we don't really know. We're not experts, but I think they can live together. 
I think they're mostly solitary insects, so they're not, um, they're not building nests. And I think when they build nests, that's when they start to display really territorial behaviour. But from what I can gather, you'll actually get a couple of different species cohabitating, as long as they don't share the same pipe or tube or hole or whatever. But we'll find out. Uh, you mentioned like the number of native species earlier, and I was wondering if any of them could be kept, or has that been done? Yeah. So. So what's that? Sorry, what was the question? I didn't. I think with most of the bees that we're appealing to here are solitary bees, so you can't really sort of keep them as pets. If you're talking about social insects that are native, so the native bees of Australia, they do produce honey, but they're pretty much, it's too cold down here, so it's Sydney and up. That's where you get those species, the sugar bag bees. And, and there's a species of stingless bees, like little black stingless bees, yeah. To give you an idea, like a hive like that could produce about 100 kilos of honey a year. With the native bees, like the stingless bees, you'll maybe get like one kilo of honey, two kilos of honey. So, um, yeah, they're quite different yields. They don't sting, which is great, but they can bite you in the eye. But you've got to pretty much be in Sydney or north of Sydney to look after them. And there's some great beekeepers up there who specialise in stingless bees. So I assume you harvest honey from, um, from your hives. I was just wondering, how do you know what's the maximum you can take without, like, say, before winter so they have enough to survive? How do you work out that? Kind of trial and error, really. But what I've discovered now in Melbourne is if you've got a good colony and a strong colony... So these boxes are called, um, like, deeps. You've got the deep supers and then you've got the ideals which are the shallow ones. I tend to beekeep a lot with... I make my honey in ideals because I beekeep a lot with women and it's much easier for them to lift smaller boxes. Um, and what I've discovered is in Melbourne, you could have... You know, the queen usually contracts her brood or her babies. So the population of a colony goes like this. In winter, it's here. In spring and summer, it's here. In autumn, it comes back down and back down to here in winter. So this will be full of the brood frames, probably with honey in frames one and two and seven and eight in winter. What I've discovered is that you can just keep eight ideal frames and that's more than enough to get them through winter. In a really bad winter, if it's raining every day, it won't be enough. So what I'll often do is just run a deep with an ideal, and anything below that is for the bees. I never rob from there down. And so I basically just rob from there up. And if you run lots of ideals, you know, there's a little gap between the frames. It's like running a queen excluder. So the queen, every time she hits a gap, she's reticent to go through. So if you're running like three or four ideal boxes on top of a brood chamber, you don't even need a queen excluder because she'll only move up so far, whereas if you're running deeps, she'll use the whole frame. That's probably a bit technical for everyone, but... So, but leave them with about 8, 10 kilos of honey over winter. So what we try to do as natural beekeepers is we don't rip all the honey out of the hive and feed them sugar water, which is what a lot of commercial beekeepers do. So they'll take all the honey out and then give the bees sugar water to get them through winter... But that's kind of shitty, you know. So we just leave them with their, own, with their own honey. And we only rob the surplus. We only rob what they don't need. Is there a question over here? Hi. Um, it was kind of similar to the last question. It was just kind of um, how disruptive is it to take honey and, yeah, how does it kind of work? Do you have to break the... Um, honeycomb when you take the frames out yeah there's lots of different ways you can do it um if you're running langstroth frames which is what we run so in australia you have to have removable frames that's basically the law 
you can either do the crush method, which is where you crush the honeycomb like in an apple press. You can crush it down and all the, uh, all the honey comes out. And you'll find one school of beekeepers who'll say, that's the best thing for the bees because the bees get to build their own comb every season and da-da-da. Whereas I'm, because I run Langstroth frames, I do it a little differently. And I just did this great little video series on this yesterday. You take the frame out, you get this special little uncapping fork and you scratch the top off the honeycomb. So imagine the honeycomb, you've got all these little cells next to each other. And when the honey's ready, the bees put a lid on it, like a little wax lid. That's called capped honey. And they cap it when the moisture content dips below about 18%. And that way we know that the honey isn't going to ferment. You basically scratch or cut or slice the cappings off the honey, both sides, pop it in a centrifuge, spin it around. All the honey gets thrown out. So you end up with honeycomb with no honey in it. And then you put that back into the hive. The bees fix it up and they fill it up and you do it again. But that's the sort of Langstroth method of beekeeping. There's lots of different ways to be a beekeeper. Sorry, you mentioned, will honey actually prevent it? Yeah, yeah. So if you... So... Um, when honey's cured, when it's fully cured, it'll last forever. But if you pull it out before the bees have finished doing their magic and the moisture content's in the 20% or whatever, it will ferment, yeah. So that's why we always have this rule that it has to be two-thirds capped, one-third uncapped. So, and you'll literally see it. You'll have like, it'll look like a waxy surface, which is capped. But if you can see honey in each of the cells without a cap on it, that's uncapped. So proceed with caution. But once it's, once it's actually capped, if you keep it in an airtight container, it'll last forever. But that's what mead is as well. So mead is when you add water to the honey and you dilute it. You get wild yeasts in there and it ferments. Um, I may have missed something, but um, when you were explaining like the traps and how the bees do the waggle and yeah. go find their new home, yeah. when you make your own beehive for them, do they then not get the opportunity to waggle? Oh, no, no, no. They'll come inside and they'll waggle here all the time too. So they waggle whenever they find a flower. But, but do they, they don't have that like, experience of finding a new home. Is yeah. that like, important to them? I think swarming is important and I think yeah. it's really nice for them to do that and I probably shouldn't say this because I'm an urban beekeeper but I kind of let my bees swarm if I can but I just didn't say that. Okay. Um, so letting them swarm is like letting them have that experience of... Yeah. The, yeah. And it's also allowing the... It's also allowing them to, um, to breed and to create new queens in the colony that they come from which is really important. But... It's a controversial subject with beekeepers and with people that live in the city. Usually I try to stop it. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but I was just wondering why you're not using the hive that you can... Um you have the tap on it and the cells break together to drain the honey out without having to like go inside the hive. No, I don't know what you're talking about. I think you I do. I do, okay. <laughs> um, all right, how do I say this? I'm a natural beekeeper. So one of the miracles of beekeeping is watching the build, bees build the architecture that they're going to raise babies in, that they're going to store food in. They store pollen in there, they store nectar in there. It's a beautiful thing to behold. And bees will vary the size of their cells depending upon whether or not they've got a big honey flow on. If there's a lot of food coming in, they build big cells. If they want to build, make drones, boy bees in spring, they build big cells. Um, and 
they build their cells out of wax scales that they actually extrude, extrude from their own bodies. So the bees shed the wax. They make the wax themselves at a sp- particular stage in their life cycle and that falls to the floor and they build the honeybee, you know, the, the honeycomb out of it. Like, it is such an integral part of the colony the honeycomb and allowing the bees to make their own that I find an articulated and operable plastic mechanism inside the hive to be pretty much 10 out of 10 in terms of interventions. And the stuff about how it's bee-friendly and that you never... It's so much easier to do. In spring, your flow frames are always up here, right? These are where, this is where the honey is. You always have to run a queen excluder because you can't have the queen laying eggs in there and they can only ever use it for honey storage, not for making babies or brood. Whereas if you let them build their own comb, if they want to put babies in there, they'll put babies in there. If they want to put honey in there, they'll put honey in there. So I don't have one. I think the tap hive it removes that... Um you know, human relationship with the bees a little bit as well. Like, you don't know the health of your hive or mm. colony. And it kind of turns it into this total consumer thing. It's like you just turn the tap on and you get honey, whereas for us, it's a whole experience. And I'm hoping you're kind of getting that vibe. Like, it's getting in there and without your gloves on and smelling the comb and watching and build the comb every week and looking at it and understanding what's going on. That's part of the fun. Forgive me, Flow Hive. <laughs> I think that's time too, isn't it? Thanks, Zoo. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Thanks. everyone. Thanks, M Pavilion. Thanks for coming, everyone. Thanks.